0: I
1: suck at jiu-jitsu. To How do I suck less at Jiu-Jitsu? Jiu-Jitsu. I guess this suck less. a The leader of the Hey
0: everybody, this is Josh McKinney, and I just want to welcome you to the newest episode of the I Suck at Jiu-Jitsu show. So we are back with interviews, again, with new interviews, we're not having to go back and uh, and do reposts anymore. Well, I'm sure we'll do those in the future, who knows. Um, but for right now, we are back to recording. I'm getting some time to be able to, to chat with my friends again. And uh, I know that for a lot of people, that is their favorite part of the podcast. And for a lot of us, me included, we're just getting a little tired of, of Josh talking. And so getting to hear from other people is uh, uh, is exciting. And I thought that this is actually an interview that we had to reschedule like two or three different times. Um, it was like being sick and um, having a baby and just all kinds of random craziness made us reschedule this interview but this is one that i've been actually wanting to do for a very long time and i think that this interview is going to be so beneficial for so many people. We're actually gonna piggyback um, this interview uh, from the, and do a Thursday episode, continuing uh, with kind of what this conversation is about. And of course it's rambly and it's fun, um, but this conversation with Steve Kwan, the host of BJJ Mental Models uh, is to me, um, is, is a big hole for a lot of people in the jitsu space and it is how to ask questions it's how to gain a deeper understanding and i think that so many people struggle with this um you know if you have ever taught a jujitsu class you have asked the blank question before Does everybody get this? Or what would anybody like to learn today? And what you'll find is most of the time, people don't have any good answer to that question because learning to ask questions is a skill in itself. And to me, I've gotten to be on a lot of podcasts at this point, and I've gotten to have so many conversations with so many high-level people. But something that Steve has uh, to me that is, is just unbelievable is his ability to dig deeper. Um, if you guys listened to when I was on the bj Mental Models podcast, uh, Steve and I talked about Designated Winner and how he was able to ask. It almost felt like the same question with just little variations to get me to explain deeper and to try to Um, almost it almost challenged me to understand my content and what I was trying to explain better and I think that he does such a good job of this so I wanted to try to use his skill set and ask him questions to try to dig a little deeper in understanding how to understand things deeper and I think that we we did a really good job of this I also um, we're gonna be having his brother Matt on soon Um, I need to to reach out but you guys know how terribly lazy I am and and bad I am at doing that stuff Um, but uh, we're gonna have Matt on soon and I think both of these guys just they ask phenomenal questions and so getting to try to play on the other side of it and be the question asker was really really fun for me Um, but besides that I really think you guys are gonna you're gonna really love this episode I, I love how it turned out it is to me the reason that I like to do interviews uh and the reason I like to do interviews in the way that we do them it is very off the cuff and fun and organic and uh it just to me it's been a while since I've done an interview like this I've done an interview in general uh for the show and so uh it was fun to get back to I can't wait to to keep these interviews rolling and I can't wait to introduce you guys if you've never heard the BJJ Mental Models podcast or um, checked out their premium site I uh, Uh, I can't wait to introduce you guys to Steve. You guys are really going to love his ability to just convey information and some of his explanation on how to understand things deeper. So without further ado, let's go ahead and get into the episode. All right, Steve, how are you doing today? I am doing good, buddy. How's it going? Everything is, is good on my end. This is my first podcast back in, um, it's, it's probably only been a month, but it feels like forever. Um, but yeah, first one back from, uh, being on dad duty for a long time.
1: Hey, like I said earlier, congratulations, man. Is this your first kid? Yes. First kid. Uh, how's your, how's your sleep schedule at the moment? It, it couldn't be worse. Uh, yeah, yeah I, <laughs> yeah, I, right. haven't,
0: I haven't slept in weeks. Um, you know, I was, I was joking with a lot of people of like, man, uh, I wish that people would have, would have told me, uh, to not do this, you know, like, Hey, you're going to, it's going to be so hard. You've never done something. No jujitsu competition you've ever done even compares to this. Uh, yeah. you know, it's going to be hard.
1: I was talking to, uh, Rafael Lovato jr. Cause he had twins recently, his first kids as well. And I asked him what's harder being a like eight time world champion or having two kids who are crying at night and you're trying to get them both to sleep. And his answer was, what do you think? It's the kids, <laughs> obviously, <laughs> obviously it's the kids way, way harder. Yeah. It, having kids is the hardest job that no one ever has any training for. Um, nothing can prepare you for it. I definitely remember the same thing. And I, I mean, I'm a pretty cautious guy. I did a lot of, you know, research and prep and I thought I knew what I was getting into and I expected it was going to be real hard but man, having a kid, especially a newborn, is way harder than I, even in my worst case scenario, possibly imagined. It is a uh, a life-changing amount of work in a way that is hard to describe to people who haven't been there before.
0: Yeah, man, there is, there is no doubt about that. Uh, something, you already kind of mentioned it, uh, something that I thought would be fun to kind of touch on in this conversation is uh, you, I, I know very few people who have gotten to have more conversations with high-level grapplers and high-level coaches. And, uh, you know, you just uh, talked about Rafael Lovato Jr. And, you know, you just, when you look at the list of people that you've had on your podcast and um, and getting to have those conversations, this is actually something that I asked you, I want to say when you and I, when I was on uh, Mental Models, um, but I just thought a fun place to start would be, do you ever get nervous um, before you have to to interview one of these high level people, and if anybody springs to
1: mind with that, honestly, not really. I mean, it it's pajama wrestling, right? I mean, I've been <laughs> in this I've been in this ecosystem and long enough to know a few things. First of all, it like we do this for fun, right? It has to be fun. You have to try not to take it too seriously. Um, but also, I mean, I've been around enough high level people. I've been to seminars enough to know that everyone in jiu-jitsu is, is very casual about this, right? It, it's not like walking into a boardroom with a bunch of billionaires who are going to, you know, rip you apart. It is jujitsu people. Some people are more serious about it than others. They, they build their lives around jiu-jitsu, but at the end of the day, most people are relatively friendly, right? I I've, never had a bad experience uh on the podcast with anyone everyone's always been wonderful easy to get along with so i mean maybe there was nerves at the beginning but now it's just just the job right the other thing too is we don't do it live we do a lot of cleanup and editing and post-production mostly to make myself sound smarter so the benefit to that is it can't possibly go that wrong right in the event that for some reason, things just don't work out or someone loses their train of thought or the whole thing just goes off on a massive tangent, you can fix that in post, right? It's not that big a deal. So, uh, for you, what kind of started you, what made you start, uh, wanting to,
0: to do the podcast? I know, I know I, um, kind of actually listened to some mental models really early on. And it seemed like there was just this switch that flipped at one point where you were like, Oh, I'm really going to commit to this. I really, you know, really enjoy doing this. Um, what kind of made that start happen? And then that transition of you being the mental models guy
1: yeah yeah so the backstory um for those who don't know i i think i've been training around 15 years at this point uh i'm a jujitsu black belt practicing out of bc canada um probably most famously I'm a hobbyist I only train a few times a week at most uh, I used to train a lot more prior to having kids but as I'm sure you will soon discover it very much gets in the way of your training it's uh hard to convince the wife to let me go pajama wrestle when there's a kid at home sometimes um but the, yeah so I I got started a long time ago I, I but I've always been a hobbyist I've never competed nothing against it it's just not what I wanted out of the sport um I just always thought of it as look I, it's something I want to do I want to do martial arts. I want to learn how to defend myself, get in shape. I don't have any competitive aspirations. For me, this is a hobby. It's, it's a thing I do for fun. Uh, I don't have any achievement-based goals out of it. Uh, my brother is also a jiu-jitsu black belt. Completely different story, completely different lineage. Um, d- despite the fact that we're related, pretty much nothing about our journey is similar. He is a black belt under a different instructor. He does Take jujitsu very seriously. He's a full-time jujitsu coach and competitor and teacher. So for him, this is his job, right? It's not just a thing he does for fun. It's tremendously important that he does it to the best of his ability because that's how, you know, he pays the bills. That's how he he gets things done. But what we found, of course, being brothers, we're talking about jujitsu all the time. It's the always the topic of conversation at dinner between the two of us. And what we found is despite the fact that we kind of have these two very different journeys there are, there were things about our approach that were very similar. And that was trying to dramatically simplify jujitsu, make it just reduce it to kind of the bare bones conceptual framework. And that's kind of where BJJ mental models came up. Um, it's terminology. The whole mental models thing is a, a term you hear in other fields. Basically the idea is you're looking for big ideas or patterns that you can learn and reproduce and deploy later and just simplify your thinking. Right. So um, we kind of came up with a, a list at the beginning of just ideas that we thought would be universal to jujitsu. And then after publishing it on a website, we started the podcast and then it just kind of snowballed from there. Uh, I would say that the moment where it really changed from being just a, a thing I wasn't really committed to, to being something that became a core focus of my life was, uh, when the pandemic happened. You know, there was a lot of uncertainty, um, especially for my brother, who is, you know, as a jujitsu gym owner, uh, nothing, like nothing can screw up your business plans worse than a pandemic if you're a gym owner. Right. Yes. So we got we got thinking, you know what, we'd always done this for free and basically eaten the cost ourselves of doing the podcast, which, as you know, is a lot more uh, time and cost intensive than people probably assume it is. Um, but we started a, at the time just a Patreon just to see if we could get anyone to basically throw money our way to help us out during the pandemic. Uh, and I was frankly shocked at how many people were willing to pay to hear my dumbass talk. I, I did not <laughs> expect that anyone would sign up uh, and it dramatically exceeded our expectations. So that's when I kind of realized there might be something there. So since then, we, we've we pivoted and we've expanded. And right now, the podcast is just one piece of, of what we do. As you know, we've got a whole cohort coaching framework. We've got a whole course library that we sell directly to our premium subscribers. Uh, We're not so much on Patreon anymore. We have our own platform at bjjmentalmodels.com. So for me, I would say to to answer your question, that was the big moment, um, was when we started asking for money and I realized, holy smokes, there are actually people who are willing to pay. That very much changed uh, the relationship I had with the work, right? Because once it becomes something that you're making money off of and you realize I could conceivably Feed my family doing this—that very much changes your your level of focus and your level of investment in making it happen.
0: Yeah, I I totally I totally understand that. Uh, something funny—I finally I, I got to uh, meet your brother uh, through you. Uh, in was on his podcast, and so gotten to talk back and forth with him, message back and forth with him on Instagram quite a bit. And something interesting to me is personality-wise. You two don't seem that similar to me.
1: You see two seem very different. different. Yeah. And you know, uh, you wouldn't, you wouldn't necessarily think so if we were in the same room together, I think, but if you get one-on-one, I mean, we have, like I said, we're very different people. Um, Really the main thing we have in common is jujitsu, right? So that's kind of the, that was sort of the impetus of a lot of the work that I do. And also a lot of the work that he does was we realized, well, hold on, you got this one guy who is a pro competitor black belt. Uh, who runs a gym full time you got this other guy who like fits in one or two training sessions a week in between his video game breaks um but a lot of the honestly a lot of the big lessons that we learned throughout the journey was were very similar and that's kind of where we realized there might be this like unified framework of ideas that are going to be beneficial to everyone and that's kind of how we got started on what we do yeah, that is, that
0: is, I just noticed it as, you know, talking to him a few times, there is a similar, slightly dark sense of humor from both of you that I, <laughs> I noticed that crosses over. Yes. Um. But I would say that like, just in personality, I just like, man, these guys are so different and it's so cool to see. How much jujitsu uh, can unite you? You know, uh, for me, my dad and I are both black belts, and uh, we we really are similar people. But uh, still, just having that family
1: member that trains. Does anybody else in your family train? Uh, at the moment, no. Well, actually, no. That's not true. My my little girl does. She's very young though, and she's uh, mostly training because we we put her there. Uh, I'm very curious to see if she get if she gets when she gets older rather, um, if she continues to keep up with it when it's more her decision. You know, she's still so young. I don't think she realizes that she kind of has a say in these things. My hope is that she is uh, as in love with jujitsu as her uncle and her dad are, but we will see.
0: Yeah. But, and it's one of those things that you, you know, you don't want to force. It's like jujitsu is like broccoli. Yeah. You know, if you're forced to eat it as a kid, most likely you'll hate it as an adult. And that's so, my concern.
1: Right. So yeah. we try to, we, we try not to make it sound like this big competitive, stressful thing to her. We try to make it come across. Given her age, like it's a kind of a fun kids' club to go to. And that yeah, seems was, to have worked really well. It was a
0: a really random. Um, you know, I don't want to overshare uh my son's life, you know, his two weeks of life, but uh there was a <laughs> point not a lot where to share yet. <laughs> there was a point before he got circumcised where the urologist had to come in. And it was the most random thing. The urologist walks in, and I look and I'm like, I know this lady from somewhere. And I give her a weird look and she goes, we know each other. And I go, oh, okay. And she goes, you know, I'm, I'm so, and so's one of my, uh, um, black belt buddies, uh, sister-in-law. And she made the, the statement of, "Yo, know, is this the next jujitsu world champion? And I was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. If he wants to be, it is, but I'm just worried about his penis right now. Okay. Could we just, <laughs> could we just get that taken care of? Uh, let's just go one thing at a time. Um, yeah, so you never want to you never want to force that uh on a kid it seems like it just seems like you know I'm sure you've been around jujitsu long enough that you see parents that do that and their kids even have so much potential and they end up falling off just because mm-hmm. it's it was forced on them and it was it's become it becomes this point of stress and not this fun thing, like how jujitsu is for, for you and I. Um, but you've mentioned a few times that you,
1: uh, you only train a couple of times a week. What does that training look like for you? Honestly, I mean, people who listen to the podcast might think that I've got this incredibly regimented genius training method, but it's really not. I mean, I'm not a, I'm not a gym owner, so I have very little say in my own training. And this is actually part of what I like to talk about on the show. You know, there are so many hot topics in the community right now about modernized uh, science-based training methods. But the challenge that a lot of students have is they can hear that. But look, if if you want to practice like an ecologically informed approach at your gym, if you're a two-stripe white belt, you may not have that much say in it so what do you do right and um, that's always something I like to consider is when you propose the the better way to do things is this something that a student can do themselves or is this a message that needs to be communicated to the coach most of the classes I go to are pretty unremarkable I mean at this point in time I'm mostly just going there for fun Um, over the last year or so I've just been so busy with work and the podcast I've kind of tried to to de-scope my jiu-jitsu training to just enjoy myself. Um I've, I I you you will have heard me talk about this a lot on the podcast recently that I really believe the the fundamentally most important thing about jiu-jitsu is that you have to have fun doing it. You talked about this earlier yourself, right? So easy for people, especially kids to drop off, but we both know what happens to adults as well. I mean, jujitsu jitsu does have a a significant attrition rate. Uh, and part of that is just because it's a long-ass journey. Right. I mean, if you do it right, you're probably going to be doing it for the rest of your life. Hard to keep the motivation up the whole time through. And so recently I've just been trying to reconnect with um, the things about it that that I really enjoy and that I find fun. And a lot of that comes down to less performance and more the social side, the cultural side, the opportunity to express yourself through movement. So basically all of that is a long way to say what I've been doing is I've just basically been dicking around in class. I'm not really taking training seriously. I've just been trying, I've been trying a lot of really weird, crazy, obscure turtle stuff to see if I can make it work. And uh, most of what that's done so far is annoy my training partner. So I I think it worked. Um, That's basically what I've been doing, but yeah, my, my training is not particularly um, like highly competitive or anything like that. I just try to get the most out of the classes that I can and Make peace with myself that I'm doing the best with the time I can. I can invest into it. A lot of people beat themselves up, right? And they look at they look down the across the class and they see someone there who's training four hours a day every day, and then they get upset because they're not as good as that person. But I mean, look at, at the end of the day, you have to have a healthy relationship with jujitsu, and part of that means understanding. Okay, I can commit X hours a week to do this, and I'm just going to get the the most I can out of that time. And I'm going to be at peace with that afterwards. I'm not going to beat myself up, not going to compare myself to the pros who are training five times more than me, just within my little box here. Am I happy with what I'm doing? And so that that's kind of what I've been trying to do recently. There's nothing more fun than learning the turtle stuff, right? I'm assuming you're
0: a Preet and uh, Chris Payne's type turtle stuff. Is that kind of what we're what you've been looking at?
1: I so my my turtle background is a little bit different. Um, I I have a different ethnic turtle background. I don't play Estonian turtle, I play Canadian turtle. It's a little <laughs> bit different. Um, the back the back story here though is many years ago. Um, I I observed in training that when I was getting tapped out, it was almost always when someone was on my back. I it very rarely was I getting tapped from mount or any other position, it was from the back. And after paying a bit more attention to that, I realized it's not actually when they get to my back that I'm having trouble. It is that they are slingshotting onto my back from turtle or something. And then before I know it, they got two hooks in and they're choking me and like, I'm already done. The fact that they're on my back is not really the problem. The problem is I gave them a clear pathway there to get everything they wanted. So... I kind of got to thinking well what happened if you know it, it, i've identified the point of failure here is that turtle moment that point where they can they have a they can see your back but they're not on it and i'm making it too easy for them to get there so i started just relentlessly pulling turtle to force myself into that position so that i would be able to build up defense there and just get reps and get practice and over time a few things happened one is i got really good turtle defense But the other thing is I got so comfortable and so experienced playing turtle that sometimes I can just kind of force people into that position and bait them right? Because you know how Mm jujitsu people are. If they see your back, they they can't resist. They have to try to take your back. And if you have really good back defense, you can exploit that. Um, And then later, I I discovered Preet and his stuff. And I've kind of been adapting bits and pieces of that into my game. Uh, At a conceptual level, I agree with almost everything that he does, although I play positions a little bit differently. Um, I'm still not super fluent on a lot of his uh, his more twisty guards like Hawking. I find that a little bit awkward and that's just my lack of practice, but I've spoken to Preet extensively about this and we, we basically share the same philosophical framework, I think to playing from that position.
0: Yeah, I mean, that is uh, for years that has always been this look down upon position, especially amongst, jujitsu competitors, you know, and, uh, the first time, not anymore,
1: baby, no turtles, not on the menu.
0: It is. And and you look like, uh, so the first time I ever really experienced it. So my dad, um, like I said, he's, you know, he was in his fifties when we started jujitsu and he, you're gonna gravitate towards Positions that work when you're not as athletic as everybody else, and so for him, he was always like, "Man, I really like this turtle position. I like watching Eduardo Tellis and in uh, learning this. And um, years and years later, and I I always thought I think you should have good defense from everywhere. So it wasn't a position I avoided. It was, but it wasn't a position I thought of as uh, as how strategic it could be and how offensive it could be. And um, I met Chris Payne's through my podcast. And eventually, like, liked what he was telling me enough. I'm like, I got to bring this guy in for a seminar. And, um, you know, as you know, why his
1: nickname is the villain, right? Did he explain that? Give me, give me your, I mean, I've met him before, so I know why Ah. he's
0: the villain. Well, Uh, it's
1: because, like any villain, he always loses. He's just, he sucks. (laughs) He's terrible. Never wins anything. You know, he, he says that. I think we
0: both, we always joke that we are, um, the other side of the world, uh, the same person though. Um, and so we have both always joked that, like, yeah, and you can actually hear it the first time I had him on the podcast. We do like 90 minutes, and I had this list of questions I was gonna ask him, and it started to digress. And I started to go, wait, how do you feel about warm-ups? And he's like, Oh, they're trash. He's like, I'll never have my guy shrimping up and down the mat. And like we started to get deeper. And then at this point, it was like in Step Brothers, where he goes, did we just become best friends? Yeah, And uh, ever since then, we've had this, you know, this relationship and the time we first get to roll, it's kind of a weird situation that you learn about somebody's philosophy and realize it matches your own so much, but you still have to test if the other guy sucks. Right. And so the first time we get to roll, we go uh, just absolutely do like an hour straight. And I think for both of us, we would agree like, yeah, we, hardly ever get submitted by anybody. uh, And we both generally can submit people at will. And I want to say we had both gotten like two submissions each in an hour and we rolled straight through in the hour. And it was just afterwards. We just kind of sat there staring at each other like, this this is awesome. This is so Mm -hmm. cool. And for me, I was like, I need to work this turtle position because I would get him in these turtle positions where I expect, okay, I'm going to win. I'm going to submit this guy. and then. I wouldn't. And then he would sweep me. He would, you know, he just would do all of the, the Chris Payne's villain stuff. And since then we've really, uh, just for my whole school, we've adapted that position. And, uh, yeah, for me, I just, every Saturday, I actually like, I only work turtle. And so every round I start in turtle and guys try to smash me and it is, to me, the most fun day of training—one um, because it protects my body so much more than when I'm trying to pass the guard and when I'm trying to get submissions—but um, then also there is nothing more fun about like pulling that piece of cheese away from people when they're really sure that they are going to that they're going to submit you. Um, yeah. And so, for you, with all these different conversations you've gotten to have with all kinds of different. High-level people. Is there anybody who sticks out as um, having more of an influence or an effect on your game in jujitsu?
1: From the people I've spoken. To.
0: Hey guys, Josh McKinney here. I just want to interrupt this podcast and give you guys a little information about what is happening at simplifyingjujitsu.com. So a lot of people um, have already checked out, have already purchased uh, our efficient strength for BJJ in 15 minutes. This is my dad's kind of life work when it comes to uh, jujitsu strength and conditioning. He's been working on this He's been working as a personal trainer um, and uh, a fitness expert for over 30 years, but then he's been working with jiu-jitsu athletes for over 15 years, and this is kind of the culmination of all of his work, but what's even exciting, the reason I wanted to bring it back to your attention, is we actually just made some big additions to this program. We just added an ebook to it to kind of help deliver the context a little less conceptually and um, just a little more Uh, direct. And we even created some routines that are very easy and basic to follow that are available in that ebook. If you've already purchased the product, you already have access to this. Um, But then we also added a group workout session and uh, an extra hour of content. We added an hour long uh, fitness seminar that he did for my team at our gym. And uh, there's a lot of question and answer in that. And it's just going to help you kind of get a a better picture of what we are doing with this, uh, efficient strength workout that we've been doing. Uh, and again, this workout only takes 15 minutes a week. If you're doing it twice, it takes 30. Um, but still what, what strength and conditioning program designed for people that don't have to be on steroids and don't want to get injured. Don't want to have to have a new, a second job by having to work out all the time. What else is there out there that even compares to this course? To me, there really isn't anything, especially designed specifically for jujitsu athletes. And so, if that is interesting to you, be sure to go to simplifyingjujitsu.com/15. That one simplifyingjujitsu.com/15, and check this course out. I promise you, you won't be disappointed. And we are going to keep updating it and keep making this course even better. And also, some people have asked could we get access to the Steve bundle if we purchased this uh, course? And I decided to just leave that access to the Steve bundle, um, which is all of the courses that my dad has done uh, with our Um, with our uh, Simplifying Jiu-Jitsu page and all those courses, and they're half off with the purchase of Efficient Strength for BJJ in 15 minutes. And so that's all I have for you. Let's go ahead and get back into the episode. And so for you, With all these different conversations you've gotten to have with all kinds of different high-level people, is there anybody who sticks out as um, having more of an influence or an effect on your game in Jiu-Jitsu?
1: From the people I've spoken to, um, there are many moments, I would say, on the podcast where someone put an idea forth that really changed the way that i i think uh, it's not really jujitsu specific but uh christian graugart from bjj globetrotters was on mm-hmm. our podcast quite a while ago um the way that he talked about creativity and trying to give back to the community and the people around you really kind of changed the philosophy of everything that i do especially on the podcast um we also had some great chats with john thomas where we kind of jousted back and forth talking about, okay, when are like concepts and principles good and when are they not good? And uh, his answers kind of tempered my thinking. Um, I used to be much more of the mind that, you know, all concepts all the time, all mental models, nothing else. But John did bring up some good examples. Like, look, sometimes you just need to roll up your sleeves and do the freaking arm bar, right? You know, sometimes you just need to get time in on the mat. And it is possible if you tend to be a more analytical person to overthink things and basically paralyze yourself just because you're so you're you're so focused on thinking about the concepts and how all of these things work that you're not actually just getting the reps in and you need a bit of both right so there, there have been a lot of situations um again we talked about lovato he also famously gave me shit on the podcast one time for referring to myself as a hobbyist and he had a he had some good points which is look i mean if you've committed a significant portion of your life to jujitsu and you're getting life-changing value out of it and you're giving back to the community, can you really call yourself a hobbyist? Is that, is that a fair label? And I'm thinking, look at this, if this guy's going to tell me I'm not a hobbyist, I'm definitely not going to argue with him. (laughs) Right. So, um, that one of the coolest things about doing a show like that, as is I'm sure you have also found is you get exposed to all of these different takes and different ideas. And every once in a while, you know, in your quest to bring information to the public, someone drops something on you that really changes the way you think as well, and that to me has been the the main takeaway and the big benefit I've gotten out of doing the podcast for as long as I have.
0: Man, that's that is huge, and this is kind of uh, just how I wanted to segue uh, the main kind of idea that I wanted to talk to you about, uh, and that is. It, when it comes to, you know, a, a lot of times I've gotten to experience being on mental models before and, um, you know, you really do a good job of having a topic and having an idea that is going to be discussed, but um, kind of the way that you can dig deeper, um, you know, using questions to just dig deeper and get more information. To me, it was um, it was like nothing I've ever experienced, and I've always enjoyed mental models, and so uh, I had assumed that it would be like that, uh, but I just kind of wanted to start with more of a broad question and then kind of dig deeper um, on this skill set that you seem to have, and that is, uh, what are some things that you notice uh, people lack in the jujitsu community when it comes to... It, whether just asking questions or just being curious in jiu-jitsu
1: in general hmm, um, good question i mean i i would say in terms of curiosity most people who are knee-deep in jiu-jitsu they're they're curious right they there's always something new to learn uh i don't know many people who who have reached a point in their jiu-jitsu community where they just kind of stop being curious if that happens that's usually a symptom of a broader problem like burnout, right? Or lost motivation. And so the problem there is usually not curiosity. The problem is this person is just done. They're just, they don't want to do it anymore. Um, I would say that the the thing that I try to do from our, our show is I try to number one, like you said, I always want to have a clear topic. Uh, Most people, when they do a podcast or any sort of media like this, they're thinking from the perspective of themselves or maybe the perspective of the guest. But you always have to bear in mind that when you do a show, you're doing it for a third party that's not there, right? You're doing it for the listener, ultimately. And that listener is not you. They're going to have a very different demographic, right? I mean, look, I've been training for Fifteen years. I know that most of my listeners have probably been training for a lot less than that, um, and so I have to be very mindful of the things that I say because if I just go too deep into the reads and I don't explain something, I'm going to lose seventy percent of the listeners right off of the bat. Um, the good news is, though, I'm a total idiot, so that makes it really, really easy to talk like a total idiot, right? I uh, the benefit I find actually to being a hobbyist is it's a lot easier to be curious because I'm not so deep in the reeds that I have knowledge I can take for granted. Um, If you are someone who trains and lives the jujitsu life full time and you watch every single comp and you watch every single instructional, it's easy to get afflicted by that curse of knowledge where you, you know so much that you can't put yourself in the perspective of a new person anymore. And so I always try to do that. I, I try to think, look, okay, if I were someone tuning into this podcast, I didn't know what BJJ Mental Models was. I didn't know who the guest was. Uh, what, what would I get out of this conversation? And, and how can I, as the host, make sure that first of all, this thing is structured. So it's not just some rambling talk about like what this guy ate for breakfast, but rather I'm at, we actually have a lesson that we're trying to put together and how can I make sure this is a lesson that this person is is really especially qualified to discuss? And then also, how can I ask progressively more challenging questions so that we start off basic, but by the end of it, there's still some value for the brown and the black belts, right? Uh, so I always try to escalate in that manner start simple, start with the assumption of no base knowledge that this is the first time the audience has ever met this person, the first time they've ever thought about this concept. And then we dig in a lot deeper over time as we go. Um, the other thing I do is I try very hard to avoid, um, visual descriptions. It is just, it's not easy in audio to teach a a visual technique, right? I mean, if I want to sit down here and explain to you how to do an arm bar, we're going to lose almost everybody. But what we can do is we can talk about the philosophy of an arm bar, the strategy of an arm bar, um, how maybe some tricks you can deploy to make your arm bar a bit sneakier, right? Uh, strategy, tactics, philosophy, those communicate very well through audio. And so I try to lean on that when it gets to the point of, okay, someone doesn't know how to actually do the technique. Where do I put my left hand? That is a very difficult thing to do through audio. So I try to avoid those topics if I can.
0: I think something you do well is um, uh, you make sure to, you know, saying things like you're a hobbyist, saying things like you're dumb. Uh, You try to not come off arrogant. Uh, But for me, I've dealt with you enough. I know you're a very intelligent person. And so... There is, it's, it can't just be that you're dumb and that's, you know, or you are ignorant to these ideas and that's why you can dig deeper. It seems to me like there is a level of not being married to ideas to allow yourself to dig deeper. So, uh, and, and you can disagree with that if, if you think that that is, is wrong. But if that is the case, do you have any thoughts on, how somebody can you know, Cause in jujitsu nowadays, especially you can't get on YouTube without seeing some absolute, something that says, no, this is the only way to train. This is the only way to think this is the only way to do, you know, to do jujitsu, or this is the only way to do an arm bar. Um, do you have any thoughts on kind of preventing that in somebody's own jujitsu journey, uh, as it seems like you have been able to do?
1: Yeah, I, I actually have a lot of thoughts on that. Um, This is one of the ways that an instructor can really screw up their students by accident, which is by speaking with more certainty than they intended. Um, Or maybe they don't speak with more certainty, but it's interpreted that way. I mean, I can give you examples, right? For a long time, I struggled with getting my guard passed. And it took me a while to realize that it was because at some point in time, uh, an instructor had told me, never turn away from the person. Always face them. Never ever turn away. It's instant death. Don't do it. And so that part of my brain just closed off that I should never turn away. The problem is you can't always prevent that, right? If you are 75% of the way through getting uh, through your opponent, doing a leg drag pass on you, by definition, you've turned away, right? Whether you want to or not. So now you've got two choices. Choice number one is try to force a move that isn't going to work, like trying to regard very, very hard to do a traditional regard. If someone is leg dragging you or number two, embrace the possibility that there's a whole world of other techniques like turtling away. Right. So I, I completely neglected that part of my game for a long time because I had been told at some point, don't ever do this full stop. And I think, um, instructors can very easily, just in, in their desire to just get the message out there. They can sometimes come across as being more absolute than maybe they intended. And I think students also have the tendency to interpret things as absolutes when it wasn't intended to be done that way. So, um, you know, I, I remember there were cases in the past where an instructor told me, if you're on bottom side control, get an underhook. And so for a long time, every time I was on bottom side control, the only thing I would try to do is get an underhook. And of the time it just wouldn't work. And I thought I was doing it wrong. And it wasn't until I got way more experience that I realized, okay, what my instructor meant to say was in this particular situation where the person is at this, you know, their body is this high up on you, then you can go for the underhook. It's not a, it was not a blanket statement that, you know, whenever you're in bottom side control, go for the underhook. There's, there's context, right? And I think that instructors would be very well suited to remind their students about that because it's so easy for people to think that there's just, there's always a right answer. You know, if you know the right technique, you can always get out. That's just not the case. Context matters so much in jujitsu. And I think we always need to remember that there just, there are no absolutes, right? Everything is relative, even very common sense advice that sounds like it should always be true. There's going to be some exception i mean i as an example in the early days of the podcast you will hear me talk extensively about the importance of, of taking the inside channel right going for underhooks, going for the inside position getting between their legs and i would tell people this is this is what you always want to do and then i started seeing people like lachlan and Margo Ciccarelli go around the outside now that's not really a strategy that works great for me specifically because of my body type But I'm not going to tell Lachlan and Margot that they can't do this, right? They found a way to make the outside attack work. So that was an example of where I was proven wrong, right? I thought something was an absolute, uh, and it turns out it's not, right? It's just one option out of many. So again, it's like you said, just nuanced thinking, right? Just not thinking in absolutes and understanding there's always an exception to the rule. Sometimes there's more exceptions than there are actual rules, And that's one of the fun things about jujitsu is it's just so chaotic, right? So many things can happen. You never really know what's going to happen next.
0: So kind of that being said, what is, you know, when we're looking at concepts, we're looking at mental models um, for you personally, what are, what are the ones that you're trying to apply? What are the ones that you're trying to, or, or how do you decide on you know hey this this big idea is something that i want to pursue and that i want to to try to figure out
1: usually i'm i'm looking for patterns um and that doesn't always mean it's something that i experience myself the benefit to doing the podcast is i can put my experience in front of other coaches and they can share their experience, and now I've got more data points, right? If someone else can confirm what I'm saying, then I know it's not just me. Um, but what I often look for these days is things that are generally going to hold true no matter what I'm doing. So uh, an example I've given on the show many times: uh, I used to struggle a lot with guard passing. I just I couldn't do it. I would always get tangled up in people's sleeves, and you know I just I couldn't move. I was paralyzed, locked in their guard, and no technique that i could try to do like i'd be sitting in that person's guard thinking okay steve let's do a knee cut pass remember steps one two three four five to the knee cut pass never worked right it would never work because as soon as i do step one my opponent's already adjusted and now the other steps don't make sense anymore and at some point i started just thinking okay what if i throw all of that away and I, i don't try to do a technique but instead i just try to keep a few goal posts in my mind at all times like one is don't let them get control and grips on me. Whenever someone is able to secure a grip on me, deal with that first before I do anything else. Um little things like that made a massive difference. And what I found was if if I focused on these things, it was easier for me to execute because I had less stuff going on in my head while I was rolling. But also it the the funny thing is the techniques that I wanted to do actually became easier because the situations to create them just happened more organically if I was just thinking more simply. So that that to me is what I look for. I look for things that generally hold true in multiple situations. Like a good example, you know, talking about Preet and uh, Chris Payne's is deny access to your, your armpit space, right? Don't let them get your underhooks. That is such an important idea in so many situations in jiu-jitsu, whether you are standing up or whether you are on bottom side control, or even if you are passing their guard, usually you don't want to let them get access to that space. So, I mean, in jujitsu, people will sometimes call that the elbow knee connection, or they will tell you to stay coiled, right? That's, That's a perfect example. I mean, if you give me a white belt, I'm probably not going to try to teach them complex techniques out of the gate until they understand those basic ideas like, don't let them get into your elbow knee space. You can prevent people from doing that, you can make them way more effective out of the gate without having to overwhelm them with a uh, technical details and minutia.
0: That yes, that makes perfect sense. Uh and, and on that same note though, you I I've, I've talked to Chris about this about the times that you do let people in your armpit space, you know, because yeah. um you know the, just in that idea of this of the time, this is what you should be doing. But as he explains it, when Conor McGregor puts his arms behind his back uh, when fighting Floyd Mayweather, obviously you should have your hands up. You should be protecting your chin. But when you become great at striking, you know when you can open up your chin to hopefully open up some other space. It's the same kind of with the elbow-knee space. So that does, to me, make uh, uh, just completely perfect sense in that. Um, Maybe kind of a step back, on this. When you are, uh, for your podcast, when you are preparing, uh, your questions for a guest, how does that kind of look? Is this something that you have this list of questions that you are going to, that you're going to ask, or is it something that as you don't understand, you say, Hey, I want to dig deeper into this.
1: So the way that I structure, a an interview is almost the same as the way I structure a, a role or going to a class, honestly. Um, I come in with some broad goals about what I want to do, but I try not to be too specific. I try not to orchestrate the whole thing and script it, right? First of all, because if I script an interview, everyone's going to know it's scripted, right? Scripted mm-hmm. interviews just hit different. They don't feel natural and, and organic. Uh, it's not necessarily a bad thing, right? Like if you listen to an audiobook, that's scripted, still awesome, mm-hmm. right? Nothing wrong with it, but a podcast allows you to convey knowledge in a way that is organic and natural. And for a lot of people, especially people like myself, it, it, we find it easier to learn that way. So it's really important to me to keep things organic and natural. Um, it's much like how, you know, if you're doing public speaking, the advice that you'll often be given is don't try to recite every word from memory because, something's going to go wrong, right? And you're going to forget something and then you're going to just completely derail. But also things can happen, right? If there's a Q&A period, you can't always script that. You don't know what's going to happen. So normally when you're preparing for a speech, people will tell you to know your big talking points, kind of have an idea of what you want to say, but reserve the right to be flexible in your approach. Um, and that's basically what I try to do on the podcast. I will, when someone's coming on, the first thing I do is um, I ask kind of three questions to myself when I want to do an episode. I ask, okay, what's a topic that I can do that, that would be really helpful to people? Number two, uh, has that topic been done to death already? Because I, I don't want to you know, have the same conversation that's been had 30 times elsewhere. That's always a, a trick with a lot of guests that do a lot of media, right? I mean, I don't want to have someone on to talk about something that I know my listeners may have already heard them have the same conversation 12 times somewhere else. But then the third thing is I want to know, okay, who's the guest that can be uniquely qualified to have this discussion with me. Someone who's passionate about it, who knows about it better than anyone else, who can communicate the idea as well. And so I'd, I'd say that's a big difference between what I do versus what a lot of other people do, which is I often don't plan an episode with a guest in mind. I have a topic in mind, and then based on that, I pull my community to try to figure out who would be the best guest. So when you came on our show, for instance, um, you came on because I had had uh, Taylor Biaggi on, and she had talked specifically about designated winner, which is a fascinating concept. I, I've never heard anyone else vocalize that. And I asked her to tell me where did that come from. And she told me. And I thought, well, now I got to have this guy on, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, that. Uh, so that to me is is I guess one thing that's different is I lead with a goal in mind. I do the same thing when I train, right? When I when I go into class, I have a broad goal for what I want to do. Uh, I try not to get too specific about it because you can never control what's really going to happen in a role, right? Um, but I might just have something very basic in mind. Like today I want to work on, uh, untethered guard retention. So maybe I want to be playing butterfly guard. I want to be playing, uh, shin on shin or instep guard or whatever you call it. And so my goal is to try to move into that position when the opportunity presents itself. And when I get there, my goal is to not hesitate. I just want to go boom, right to a sweep. Um, that's kind of all I go into class thinking about. And then afterwards, I reflect. And if I did well, that's awesome. If I if something didn't work as expected, I change it for next time. And I do the same thing when structuring a podcast interview, right? I come in with this very broad goal. And then from there, I reserve the right to change it on the fly. Because sometimes people just say or do very interesting things. And I I always want to reserve the right to stop, pivot, and adapt if they touch on something that I think is really worth covering.
0: So... When you are, uh, and I just kind of want to dig just a little deeper on this. Um, and then I have a few more random finishing questions to ask you, uh, more about, I think my curiosity, uh, but, uh, when you are deciding to pivot, is there anything, you know, and this doesn't have to be on a podcast. This can just be a, a general conversation where you are just trying to gain a deeper understanding. Um, but is there something that you're looking for um something uh conceptual even that you are trying to see that your guest is is giving you um that makes you go oh wow we should dig deeper on that
1: yeah so this has gotten more complicated as time goes on just because we've had we've got a pretty big back catalog of episodes and content now but Every time I identify um, a, a new quote-unquote mental model, right, basically a new pattern that I think, oh, shit, that's going to be interesting. I want to write that down. Um, usually I'll write it down. I'll put a blog post together about it. I'll put it on our online database, and I'll put it in the show notes. And I always try to keep those ideas in mind because if, if I'm right in my assessment that these are actually recurring patterns, they're going to come up again. Right. I mean, if if I have a conversation with Chris Payne's about the elbow knee connection, and then you come on the podcast two weeks later and you mention something similar, I'm going to try to tie it back to what I already talked about. I want to demonstrate to the to the listener that there's a pattern here. Right. This is not something that just you are saying, but we can present five other people who have reached the same conclusion through different ways. And then I will try to, if possible, without being too pedantic about it, I will try to send them to the website or send them to a relevant podcast episode where we talked about that. So I always try to look for the spider webs that connect everything together. Uh, to the best extent possible, I do want every episode we do to be a like a standalone capsule lesson that people can unpack and get something out of. But I also want to, if we've identified a valuable pattern, I want to take a, a second to put a pin in that so the listener knows that this is something that merits further study from them, right? Uh, and usually the way that I figure that out is if it's come up multiple times in conversation with a lot of guests that I respect, probably it deserves to have an article in our database and maybe some content that we make about it specifically.
0: Um, Man, that is a, that's a really great answer to that. Um, would you say that that's kind of how your, would you say your mind kind of works in pattern? Do you feel like naturally you are good at that or that this is just a skill that you've developed over
1: time? It's it's hard to say, honestly, um, I I think probably more realistically, it's the only way I can work around the limitations of my dog shit memory. I just forget yeah. things left and right. And you, 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 I'm sure, have encountered this. My memory got 10 times worse the instant I became a father, because <laughs> now you've got this this constant like child that is just taking requires your attention at all points in time. And it's very hard to focus. And I found my attention just got even more fragmented than it already already was. The big challenge I have these days is I'm like the guy from Memento, right? I'm just constantly forgetting things. I got to write it all down. So for me, that approach of organizing my thoughts um, conceptually it has always helped me not just retain information, but but better, better understand what I've actually learned, right? If I can plot something down, if I can sit down and think, man, when Josh was talking about designated winner... That actually sounds like this psych paper that someone else cited on our podcast. Maybe there's a commonality between like that kind of information to me is very helpful. Uh, and interestingly, speaking of psych papers, I mean, from a from a human psychology standpoint, if you take the time to do that and actually map out your thoughts, it improves your your understanding and your ability to retain and retrieve that information later, right? We call that effortful retrieval. The idea being that, um, you know, the, what part of the reason you would do things like take notes? It's actually not because you're ever going to consult those notes. If, you, if you're like most people, when you take notes, you'll probably never look at them again, but that's okay. The practice of actually taking notes forces you to spend a moment deliberately thinking and retrieving that information from your brain and strengthening the pathways, right? So next time you got to think about that, it becomes even easier. That's a, a great trick actually for instructors, right? You don't want to make things too easy for your students because if you just spoon feed them answers and they don't have to work for them they simply won't rem- remember that info or be able to apply it. So you always want to make sure that you're kind of pushing them so that they have to work to remember things, work to recall things. Uh, and that's why so many modern coaching techni- techniques involve making things a bit mentally uncomfortable for the student because you need their brain to be engaged. That's part of the reason why the the classical dead drilling approach is, is so frowned upon these days is because, look, if I tell you to bang out 100 arm bars on an unresisting opponent – you can turn your brain off to do that, right? I mean, it might mm-hmm. be tricky the first 10 reps if you've never done it before, but at some point, you're not going to even be thinking about what you're doing anymore. Your your body's going to be doing the arm bars and your mind's going to be thinking about the groceries you have to buy after class, right? That's not good for your skill retention. So as a coach, we want to structure things so that people do have to think hard about what they're learning and that actually helps them retain that info. Uh Kind of just a little transition
0: here, um, but you maybe even touched on it with, uh, you know, dog and deadpan drilling a little bit. Um, I just kind of wanted to get some of your current thoughts. I know you have um, on your podcast kind of done a very a deep dive on the ecological approach, uh, in in jujitsu and constraint-based training. And, um, I just kind of was curious as to what your current thought of, of the ecological approach is its uses. Is it something that, you know, you think that we should drop everything and just all go ecological and just, uh, just your opinion on that.
1: Uh, how much hate mail do you want to get here? Cause I can, oh, man. I, 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 can I only get hate, hate, hate mail, mail for you here. Okay. okay. I... <laughs> uh, well, okay. So for, I guess before we dig into that, uh, do we need to explain what we mean by the ecological approach? Yes. Is, go is ahead it, and... Okay. Go ahead. And... Okay. I, I will give my, my very brief layman's explanation of what this is um, because most people who engage on, on Reddit or follow prominent people, they will have probably heard something about the ecological approach and it can be very hard to wrap your head around what this means i will attempt here to explain it simply uh i am not a scientist i am not well super well versed on this i reserve the right to be wrong but this is my working understanding um The way that I like to think of this, right? I'm going to assume that everyone here has seen The Matrix. You know that scene where uh, Neo is learning Kung Fu and they basically just like plug a thing into the back of his head and they press a few buttons and suddenly he learns Kung Fu. It's just like uploaded into his brain. All that the ecological approach really says is human beings can't learn that way, right? It doesn't work, right? I can't just download the info out of my brain and put it into yours. Um, It just, we won't learn that way. At least we won't learn movement that way, right? Maybe if we're talking about things to memorize is a bit different, but if we're talking about how to perform something that your body has to do, it's not going to work. And there's a bunch of reasons why, right? One reason is we're just, we're different people, right? If your arms are longer than mine, if you have a different athletic body composition than me, we might have different ways of, of doing that move. But the other thing that many instructors often fail to take into account in their teaching is, look, techniques only work if you can do them against a resisting opponent i mean yeah i can sit there and do 10 dead reps of an arm bar against you but as soon as you start trying to defend things get so variable that there's really no way that you as the coach can give me all of the instructions i need you cannot just download all of that into my mind like neo in the matrix i have to practice myself i have to feel it myself i have to get experience Experience Getting different looks and different feels, right? Like what happens if you figure for your arms to block it? What happens if you try to hitchhike? What happens if you bridge and stack me? What happens if you're a giant? What happens if you're small? All of these things I, I cannot learn from someone telling me I have to learn by doing it myself. That's all really the ecological approach says is that human beings when when we learn, it's not just about what what we quote unquote know in our brains. It's about how we we work with the environment. The, the environmental context changes everything, which is why dead drilling is is generally a problem, right? If your opponent is just resisting, you're you're basically doing like you're cro- you're basically doing crossfit at that point, right? You're burning some calories doing that arm bar rep, but it is completely divorced from how a real arm bar would look. So ecological coaches will structure their classes so that they're less reliant on, you know, I tell you the 10 steps to do the perfect armbar, but rather I put in some constraints and some guard, some guardrails so that you're probably going to figure out the right way to do it yourself. Now, where this gets confusing is some coaches will make it sound like their their students are all just spontaneously inventing techniques on their own, right? So like no, it'd be learning eco doesn't mean that your students are all going to like invent the Google Plata independently on their own. But it just means that as a coach, you try to put them in positions, And you give them guidance where like an arm bar is the likely thing that's going to happen here, right? Or you give them some high level guidance, like your job is to separate this person's arm from their body to pull it free. The other person's job is to keep it there and you just practice and play. And the coach's job is to enforce those constraints. So whenever someone is kind of deviating from what you want them to learn you kind of manipulate the constraints to push them back towards it. Right. So it, the best example I can give here, uh, other than the Neo thing is it's like, it's a lot like Socratic learning where rather than me giving you the answer, I kind of ask the questions that guide you to the answer on your own. That's basically what eco is. Um, there's a whole bunch of debate in the eco community or in the jujitsu community right now about eco. I honestly think people are debating the wrong thing here. I mean, they're, really if, if people want to argue that eco doesn't work or isn't valid science that that's not an argument that jujitsu people are going to be able to win right mm-hmm. i mean there there is enough there is enough actual real science like not jujitsu bro science but enough actual real science out there to give us a, an adequate reason to believe that eco is how human beings learn to move it's at least one of the best explanations we have now um so th- the question of whether eco works or not not, is not really true right like eco is just is just a scientific way to explain how human beings learn movement um it's not a method right it's not like the atkins diet where if you follow this particular diet you're going to get jacked um it's just it's just an explanation it's a framework for how we think human beings learn and then you build your own framework on top of that right greg Sauders is probably a good example of someone who's built his own framework on top of that 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 is my understanding of it Um, I think that it is really important that everyone in the jujitsu community, I mean, if you're not going to take the time to learn eco, you should at least take the time to understand that dead drilling is not a good way to learn, right? Live resistance is always going to be better. I don't think you need to be an eco enthusiast to understand that. I mean, people like Ryan Hall, Rob Bernanke, Matt Thornton have been talking about this for decades at this point. Mm -hmm. It's just that now we're, we're mapping that to a particular scientific framework but this is not new, right? A lot of other coaches are already doing this to some extent. Basically, you just want you want to give people the ability to play, to figure things out themselves, um, and you don't want to have too many dead reps, right? That That's ultimately what eco is. However you do it, I think that aspect of live training, yeah, it, it's important. If you're going to a gym and everything is just dead reps of techniques over and over again, and if you're having a problem where you can't remember anything or you can't actually use the stuff you're practicing in a live role, that's probably an indication that your gym isn't using that ecological approach enough.
0: So let's say hypothetically speaking, you had your own jujitsu school. Would it be an ecological approach, jujitsu school? Or what what would you say it would look like um, you know, when it came to the training method used?
1: I mean, I I would not call it uh an ecological gym for a variety of reasons. One being look, I am not a scientist. I think it it's kind of disrespectful to paint myself in the clothing of a scientist and act like I am, right? Mm-hmm. At the end of the day, I can use the lessons from there, but I, I don't want people to, like, I'm not going to cosplay as a scientist, right? Um, but the other thing too, is I think there is a lot more to being a good coach than just eco. I mean, eco is an important part of it because that dictates how our bodies learn movements. At least that's how we think it does. But look, there is a lot more, To being a good coach than just learning how to do moves well, right? I mean, my brother and I were talking about this on BJJ Mental Models, right? Look, if your gym is miserable, if your people don't want to train there, it doesn't matter how good your training practices are right? <laughs> if people are quitting. You you could be, you could be on paper, the best coach in the world, but if you can't get people in the door and retain them, it doesn't matter. Right. Mm-hmm. And look, we, I mean, we've seen this, right. A lot of examples of very prominent coaches who have had mass departures because people just didn't want to train with them. Um, there's, there's a lot of things about psychology, motivation, um, the way that you communicate, uh, the way that you persuade people, the way that you get people on board with your ideas, the way that you run a team, a lot of that stuff, in my mind, is just as if not more important than the eco piece. I mean, look, at the end of the day, if a superstar athlete walks into your gym and they're totally dedicated to being the best in the world at jiu-jitsu and they're willing to put in the work and they've got the genetics and the athletic propensity like they're probably going to be pretty good whether you do eco or not honestly right just due to the time spent they're good yeah i mean look if someone is actually doing live training they're they're going to get ecological benefit on their own from the fact that they are um so i i think that although it's important i, I would not say it's the most important part of coaching i think that a lot of the people who talk about eco they, 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 they think they act like it is the single one most important thing. I don't, I don't think it is. I think it is one of many important variables that a coach must maintain. Um, so I, I, if I were running a gym, I would not advertise it as an eco gym for the same reason. I would not advertise it as a fun gym, right? Like, yeah, I believe jujitsu should be fun. I think it's the most important thing, but there's more to being a good coach than just fun. Right. So I, mm. for me, it's like, it's part of an equation. It's part of a formula, but it's not the whole formula by itself
0: that was such a good answer. I was trying to stump you on that. That was a, that was a great answer to uh... someone
1: fact check me. I, like I said, I, I fully, I just want to, you know, put the blanket out there. I mean, obviously I've spoken to a lot of people about eco who know it a lot more than me. And I I've kind of had a ton of discussions about it, but at the end of the day, I, I am not a behavioral psychologist, right? Mm -hmm. So I do reserve the right to be wrong on this please direct all of your hate mail and corrections to josh mckinney
0: <laughs> that's uh yeah that is a a perfect i thought that was a perfect answer for that i i wanted to kind of bait you on the eco question a little bit and uh i really think that i really think that even for me that gives me so much more perspective on it um you know really looking at the other the other th- parts of, of being a good coach. Um, but, uh, we're getting kind of to the end and I always like to kind of finish with, uh, a, a specific question. And so, um, for you, you've gotten to, again, you've gotten to talk to so many high level guys. I'm sure you've gotten so much great advice. So I'm sure that this answer will be hard for you. Um, but, uh, if I just ask you, what is, um, the best, or at least some of the best jujitsu advice that you have ever received. Uh, what would that be?
1: Oh boy. Um, to to identify one particular thing is, is kind of hard. I I will say, like I mentioned earlier, I think the most impactful conversation I had personally on the podcast was with Christian Graugart. Um, we're just kind of talking about his framework for creating. As someone who does a lot of podcasting and a lot of writing and content creation, it very much struck home with me, even though it wasn't specifically about jujitsu. Um, I would say though that in in terms of conversations that the that, that really moved the needle to for me personally, um, like I said, we've had some great conversations with uh Lovato a conversation I always recommend people listen to is episode 50 with Rob Bernanke, where we talk about his alignment framework Um, for, for those who don't know, Rob's got this, this framework that basically I won't go into the full details, but basically if you're struggling to remember how the hell jujitsu works, his framework is probably the simplest thing that you can learn in ten minutes to make sense of this crazy sport. Right? It make mm-hmm. it makes you understand that this actually isn't as complicated as a lot of people make it out to be. Um, I've had some amazing conversations with Emily Kwok about peak performance. Uh, In addition to being a multi time world champion, she's also uh, a peak performance coach. I mean, of course, she works closely with some of the just the absolute best in the world. Um, I know she's worked with Josh Waitskin and, uh, of course, Marcelo and a bunch of others. Uh, And in addition to being an ace competitor and a teacher now, she's also a peak performance consultant. So I loved those conversations with her um, so much so that I actually switched lineage. I'm I'm technically under Emily at the moment. That's how impactful that was to me. Um, So there's just been a bunch of great conversations. I also tend to like the conversations that are more cultural, you know, when we get a chance to uh, do something that I think might actually help the community. Um, Like we've had some, we've had some really raw episodes, honestly about um, depression uh, and misconduct and and just uh, other really heavy subjects. Um, Not necessarily fun listening, but I've had people just really kind of open up and, and share their story on, on the podcast in a way that really meant a lot to me personally. I if we can put out anything that's going to improve the jiu-jitsu world out there and make people's lives better, that to me is always, that that is the best thing that I could possibly do. And if I've ever done that, then I, I'm just absolutely thrilled about it. And I would say some of the conversations we've had, I mean, uh, about things like sexual abuse and just cultish behavior in gyms, um, some of the conversations we've had about depression, right? During the pandemic, we had uh, Dr. David Lay, uh, Black Belt uh, out of New I believe Albuquerque, New Mexico, and also a really well-known clinical psychologist. He came on and just had an amazing talk with us about depression in jujitsu and how to break out of depressive cycles. And that kind of stuff ultimately really stuck with me. That's the kind of stuff that I quote at family dinners, right? Uh, so to me, I'd say that's those are the kinds of conversations I've had that were the most meaningful to me.
0: Man, uh, another, another great answer. Um, is there anything you want to say to finish?
1: I mean, I just want to thank you so much for everything you do. I I want to thank you for having me on here. I mean, finally, I suck at jujitsu. That's a podcast I am qualified to be on, so I greatly appreciate it. Um, I want to thank you for being such a great rep to the community, for pioneering really cool collaborative ideas like Designated Winner, for hanging out with my brother and you're basically a friend of the family at this point for, for helping my customers as well. Right. And I mean, you do rolling reviews for uh, our premium guys and girls, and I really appreciate that too. So just want to throw it back at you. Thanks for everything you do, Josh,
0: man. Thank you so much for being on the show. I really, really enjoyed this conversation.
1: Me too, man. Anytime.
0: And that is the episode. I hope you guys enjoyed this one. This was a really fun one for me to do. Like I said, I've been planning on doing this one for quite a while, and I'm just so happy that we were able to get it done, get it together, and um, and get that inter- get this interview out. I think that a lot of people will kind of enjoy this, and then I also know that there are quite a few people who their two favorite podcasts our BJJ mental models and the I suck at jujitsu show because we both do take a pretty conceptual approach to jujitsu or maybe you just absolutely love half Asian people and Steve and I you know we're both we both fall in that category and so um just doing that though doing this episode I think is kind of a fun crossover for a lot of people and uh you know we are going to continue to to work together as steve even told you guys on the podcast if you are subscribed to bj mental models premium you can get me to review your match footage and that's something i've really been enjoying doing and um, honestly it has been uh, it's kind of been a blast for me. I, I never really have done that before, reviewed match footage online. I've reviewed footage for my students before, um, but I've never gotten to do it in in that capacity. And so getting to do this a couple times a week and um, even having people that have requested me again and getting to see the updates in their game and the growth in their game from some of the tips and concepts that I, I highlight and, and try to help them with uh, has been a blast. And so, just shout out to, to BGA Mental Models Premium. If you guys uh, are interested, it's definitely worth it. And then if you don't want me reviewing your match footage, you want somebody more relevant than me, there are a lot of people more relevant than me that review match footage for BGJ Mental Models. And so uh, be sure to check that out. Also, uh, like I told you guys this week, this Thursday, we will be coming out with um, just an episode on gaining more understanding, on asking better questions, because I think, like I said, that this is a hole in the jujitsu space and I think it could really be helpful for a lot of people if we try to fill that hole. And so if you enjoyed this episode, I am sure you're gonna enjoy the one on Thursday. If you are like, well, how will I know that the one on Thursday came out? Be sure to subscribe to the YouTube channel or to wherever you're getting your podcast from. Um, Just make sure to subscribe so you are getting updated every time we are putting out more content. And lastly, make sure if you are not subscribed to the YouTube channel, if you like learning Jiu Jitsu more efficiently and effectively, and just like how we do on the I Suck at Jiu Jitsu show, you like it tied into people having fun doing Jiu Jitsu and uh, some good humor with your Jiu Jitsu learning just to keep you entertained and to keep you engaged. That's really what we've been focusing on on the YouTube channel. Um, producer Bryce Allen has just been killing it lately on on the youtube channel putting out so much content uh, if you really if you include the the podcast we are putting out content almost every day of the week at this point and of course it's on youtube so it's completely free and so you guys should check that out but that is all i have for you guys today I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Uh, I hope that you guys sign up for all of the different things that I have shouted out on this episode. And most importantly, I hope today's episode helps you guys suck just a little bit less at Jiu Have a great day, guys.